45-40. As we finish out this chapter, Paul talks about virgins and widows. And he gives some reasons for remaining single if you're a virgin or you're a widow. He doesn't advise them that they have to. He just says that according to his uh, reasoning, they'd be better off if they didn't marry because of the problems that uh, they would face in that time frame. So, what I want to do this evening is I want to read verse 25 through 27 where Paul talks in regard to these virgins and widows, why they ought to remain single is because of the pressure of the system. Uh, the present distress. So let's read uh, verse 25 through 27. I'm going to read it out of uh, one of these modern, uh, uh, modern Bibles. Now I will try to answer your other questions, he says in verse 25. What about girls who are not yet married? And so they've written him, they've asked him about this, and evidently they're, they're surely aware of the situation politically and everything under Domitian and, and uh, the severity of uh, the life that they lived as a Christian being, being uh tormented and tortured and so they've asked him this question what about girls who are not yet married should they be permitted to do so in answer to this question I have no special command for them from the Lord but the Lord in his kindness has given me wisdom that can be trusted and I'll be glad to tell you what I think Then verse 26, here is the problem, he says. We Christians are facing great dangers to our lives at the present time. In times like these, I think it'd be best for a person to remain unmarried. Now he's given his advice, isn't he? He says, I think it'd be a good, good deal to just remain unmarried. Of course, if you already are married, don't separate because of this problem that we're having uh, socially and uh, politically. But if you aren't, don't rush into it uh, at this time. That's a wise decision, isn't it? But if, you, uh, but if you men decide to go ahead anyway and get married, now it is all right. And if a girl gets married in times like these, it is no sin. However, marriage will bring extra problems that I wish that you didn't have to face right now. And so here he gives reasons for remaining single. And it's because of the pressure of the system, uh, the present distress that they're under. Uh, the world system in Corinth made it hard enough to be a Christian, as it were, it was. You remember when you consider the fact that they had come out of idolatry 
and uh, they were steeped in in all of the philosophical nonsense of the world because of their ge geographical location. And so for that reason, uh, it made it hard enough to be a Christian. And so it would be, it would have been better had their minds singly been on being a, a Christian. And then the passing of this world, this world passing away, uh, is another reason. So they ought not to get too attached to something that's passing away since they've got a chance not to. Uh, of course, you can't tell married people this. I mean, you can't tell married people the reason uh, for you to remain single. But widows who once were married and virgins who were never married are being told by Paul to remain as you are, single. Why? Well, look at verse 29 through 31. Here's the why. The important thing to remember is that our remaining time is very short. And so are our opportunities for doing the Lord's work. For that reason, those who have wives should stay as free as possible for the Lord. Happiness or sadness or wealth should not keep anyone from doing God's work. Those in frequent contra uh, contact with the existing things of the world uh, offers uh, that the world offers should make good use of their opportunities without stopping to enjoy them, for the world is present form will soon be gone. <laughs> All right, that's another reason he gives for remaining single uh, if you're not married. Uh, he says, because of this ungodly world in which you live, because this world is temporary and is passing away. And so it's married... Uh, and so also is marriage, isn't it? It's not eternal. Marriage is not eternal. Uh, the Mormons believe it is, but the Bible doesn't teach it to be. It's not an eternal circumstance. And so don't get all uptight about it. It's a temporary thing in this world. In the shortness of what we have uh, left in our lives. <laughs> If you're married to a good lady, that that sounds bad until you remember she's your sister. And that's the reason why uh, you're so close together anyway. And that's and that one is eternal. So as a, as a wife, that's not uh, uh, eternal circumstances. But as a sister, you'll have her for eternity as a sister. Uh, so that one is eternal. See, I've got an external relationship with my wife. Uh, we're, we're just not uh, married. That's going to end, and the other one doesn't. The relationship I have with her as, a sister, as being my sister. 
And then the last reason in verse 32 through 35, uh, the last reason is you're preoccupied when you're married. Preoccupied, a patient. Pre, pre, that ain't a word, is it? Preoccupied. <coughs> Uh, let's read verse uh, 32 through 35. In all you do, I want you to be free from worry. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man can't do that so well. Uh, he has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. Now there in verse uh, 34. It is the same with a girl who marries. She faces the same problem. A girl who is not married is anxious to please the Lord in all she is and does. But a married woman must consider other things such as housekeeping and the likes and dislikes of her husband. <clears throat> I'm saying this, he says in verse 35, to help you, not to try to keep you from marrying, I want you to do what, whatever will help you serve the Lord best, with a few other things as possible and to distract your attention from Him. <clears throat> and so, uh, that's the last reason is uh, you're preoccupied when you're married. Again, verse 32 through 35. Well, actually, uh, there's two more, really. The, the preoccupation of being married, uh, there's two more to that. The, the person that's married has to be concerned with how he's going to please his wife or how she's going to please her husband. And they can't be concerned simply uh, with how they're going to please God. Uh, now, Paul said, said that, not me. So don't feel guilty when that occurs in your life. A lot of times we want to feel guilty when we think we ought to uh, blend those two together. But what did Paul say we're not, we're not going to do? When you are married, you, your mind is preoccupied with that. That's not unholy, that's holy. It's just a fact of life. That's all it is. So it's not a sin. It's not unholy uh, to be preoccupied with uh, the responsibilities of, of a husband or a wife. But that's one reason. If you are single, uh, to remain single because you don't have to have a double mind. You don't have to be preoccupied. You can continue in that way. Somebody says, I don't want to do that. Well, fine. Then Paul said, get married then. 
uh, we're not dealing with commandments here. Uh, he's dealing with what he thinks it's best. And remember that. He's merely given his advice in this, in this present circumstance. They've asked Paul, and Paul's telling them his advice. For virgins and widows not to marry. Yet, given other circumstances over in 1 Timothy, what did Paul say? Well, he will tell those young widows to marry. Uh, he started out with this present circumstance you're in is the reason you ought not to marry. It's just a present circumstance, that's all. Then the fact this world is passing is his second reason why they uh, might consider not getting married. And then the preoccupation of the mind. Uh, the husband toward the wife and the wife toward the husband. There's another uh, reason. And then the fourth one is the permanence of the marriage. Marriage is one deep consideration for a person who holds the world, the Word of God holy. I mean, we're not getting into this thing that it, it doesn't work out. We can, uh, we can get out. That's not the idea. If it ain't working out, we can get out. And so in verse 39 through 40, he says marriage is permanent. And that's the reason it should be allowed in the present circumstances if you can. Now, if you can't, marriage is legitimate and normal. But because of these circumstances, if there is a way for you to avoid it, avoid it. Because the calling is uh, easier lived in peace than it is in preoccupation. And the calling uh, to Paul was the important thing that needed to be uh, discussed. And so he's talking about virgins and he's saying... My advice is that they not marry. But if they do, they haven't sinned. He talked about the unmarried. And he said, my advice is that they shouldn't get married. But if they do, they've not sinned either. Uh, we didn't cover that one exactly in verse 27. Uh, he talks about the divorced parties, the ones who had been loose from a wife, and he said, my advice is don't seek a wife. But if you're married, uh, you have not sinned. That's verse 28, I believe it is. He talked about the widow and says it's better for her not to marry. But if she does, uh, where the Lord, Lord's will is, is used, she has not sinned. And that's what in the Lord means. Uh, by the way, it's an adverb, not an adjective. It, and so it discusses the action and not the person uh, she marries. And then if a Christian marries a non-Christian, don't divorce. And if you do, be reconciled. But if you marry, there, there's no sin. And that's verse 28 again. And then the Christian married to a non-Christian. He says, don't divorce. To the non-Christian, he says, if you want a divorce, 
uh, go get it because I want this one not bound. Uh, that's God's attitude. I want this one living in peace. And with that attitude, this one wouldn't have been able to reach uh, you anyway. So I, I want you gone. Uh, I want you out of here. I want you history. I want you past. And so uh, Paul lists seven different kinds of people and none of which he's permanently said they cannot be married again. He didn't say that they didn't have a right to marry, in other words. The married don't have a right to marry because they already are. Uh, and the Christian, he gives no right to divorce. Uh, he doesn't even bring up the exceptions. I'm sure he knows that, but he's discussing rules and not exceptions. And so he says, here's the rule. No divorce, uh, being a Christian. Uh, he lets Jesus name the exception, but that's the rule, no divorce. Uh, for the unbeliever, there's a rule. Do it if you want to. For the unbeliever there, uh, there's permission uh, for him. Do it if you want to. If that's your will, it's my will. Uh, he's saying the guy is not in covenant with God anyway. He's not any loster when he divorces. He's already lost. He can't get any loster. And so that's putting it in the right perspective. Uh, so it's for believers that God is caring for in this section and not the unbeliever. He says if the believer wants to depart, let him. Let him depart. We're not in bondage in such cases. Now, other sections of Scripture, God cares for the unbeliever. But in this section of Scripture, He's addressing the church, and He tells the church, its local body, every single situation that exists. Now, I think that's about as far as I want to go with this study of 1 Corinthians 7. And I don't mind telling you I'm glad that we finally got through it as far as I want to go. But let me make one statement as a warning. Although this ends our study of Paul's instructions concerning marriage, I think caution should be our watchword uh, in becoming too sure that we know the full or final interpretation of all that Paul says here. Be careful with that. Let's not allow what God forbids, but on the other hand, let's not forbid what he allows. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, 
Now the Spirit says expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, but if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things of Jesus, uh, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the word of faith and a good doctrine uh, whereunto thou hast attained. That's as far as we need to go. But there Paul is talking about people of their present circumstance and situation that in their uh, misunderstanding of Scripture, in their misunderstanding of the whole uh, uh, realm of religion, uh, they depart from the faith and they give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And uh, uh, they forbid to marry, look at verse 3, and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received. Now we're fixing to go into the weaker brother in uh, chapter 8. We've already seen in chapter 6 uh, the deal over a weaker brother, and we're going to continue in another uh, uh, bout with a brother that is weak and how we're to deal with him. But here uh, Paul says that these people will be turned away from the truth and turned unto the fables, and they will forbid to marry. Now, what did the Catholics do for years? Uh, for centuries, they forbid to marry. But now their priests can marry, the way I understand it. They used to not be able to smoke, but now they can smoke. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that they just change all the time. It just depends on which way the wind is blowing. But nevertheless, uh, there are people that, uh, uh, well, like the monks, they forbid to marry. Uh, they had this concept that we've looked at before, uh, uh, that uh, the body is evil, flesh is evil, and so you can become holy by making it suffer. And so they would sleep on thorns or rocks, on hard things. They'd sleep in the cold with no covering. Uh, they would eat coarse food. And they wouldn't dare wear anything that uh, adored, adorned them uh, with some grace and, and beauty. Uh, uh, because their whole objectivity, object was to punish the flesh. Because the flesh is evil. That was their thinking. And so they didn't marry. They didn't enjoy any of the things. Uh, they're forbidden to eat. they forbid to meet, eat, eat meat. And that's the picture there that Paul Prince of the, uh, presents as, of those kind of people. 
Now, I'm sure that there's a lot of questions you still have about uh, 1 Corinthians 7. But let me assure you that you can go to all the men who are called scholars. You can go to the commentaries and all those wise men that write. And you'll find out that they're just as lacking in understanding all the depths of 1 Corinthians 7. We all have the advantage of the snowball that has came to us from the first century. And even in some things before that. Uh, and so we benefit from that information that just gets bigger and bigger like a snowball rolling off the hill. We have access to that. But you can go and do your own research and you'll find it. Uh, what we done was pretty well stuck to the scriptures, what they say, what Paul said here in the seventh chapter. And sure, there's places that we don't fully understand it. Does it matter if we never do? Uh, if God thought it was important that we understand to the depths that we think we ought to understand, uh, then he would have revealed it. He's not an idiot. He made us and he made our minds. He knows how we think. And he's desperately in love with us and trying to redeem us. And he's given us all the information that we can understand and know. But there are some things we wonder about. Yeah, and uh, uh, if God wanted us to know, he would have revealed it clear. So, chapter 8. Uh, now, this is about meats sacrificed to idols. Mm. Now, the term now about introduces what? Well, it introduces a new subject, doesn't it? And so we leave chapter 7 and all that about marriage and divorce and remarriage and, and uh, all of that and we come to a new subject. Uh, a new subject. And uh, we'll talk about the local body uh, confronting the problem of the weaker brother. Now there's a lot of the trouble that brings congregations to their knees is not understanding how we're to deal with a weaker brother. Because in our self-righteousness, uh, we just demand that they be up to the maturity that we are. But there's always somebody higher than you. How does he look at you? Well, if he doesn't love you, uh, he sees you as a weaker brother and he don't like you. Uh, and so that's what Paul's dealing with here is uh, the problem of the weaker brother. So we have here in chapter 8 a discussion of the local body as it meets another problem. And that is the problem of what to do uh, with or how to handle the weaker brother, or the weaker brothers, plural. 
The weaker brother is always a problem within a congregation, not because they're causing dissension, because uh, weaker brothers don't. Weaker brothers don't cause dissension. Now we may uh, uh, allow the discussion uh, of issues to cause dissension and division, but weaker brothers are going to be more uh, uh, more to sin and uh, uh, deliberately causing division. To guess, then they're going to uh, uh, they're going to be more uh, 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 abused than they abuse. The weaker brother is. The weaker brother is not the guy that argues with you about something. He's the one influenced by you to do what he thinks is wrong. He's not at all uh, argumentative. He's not at all uh, waving his arms and doing all the loud talking and trying to have his way. Uh, that's, uh, that's a contentious brother that does that, not the weaker. So there's a difference between the weaker brother and the contentious brother. The guy that thinks it's wrong to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and will divide the church over it is not the weaker brother. He's the contentious brother. He's going to have his way come hell or high water. And he don't care because he has no love for the weaker brethren. The guy that's convinced that he ought not to eat meat sacrificed to idols in his conscience, uh, but because you do that, he does it anyway and violates his conscience uh, is the weaker brother. The weaker brother you will kill before you know it uh, if you're not aware of his weaker condition. You can destroy him. Now let's get into the text here. It says, now concerning. And so you know he's starting something new in chapter 8. Uh, now about. That's the way uh, he has started off all the discussion so far. Now about this. or Now about that. Now about the other. Uh, now about meats. Sacrificed idols. We know that all possess knowledge. I don't think that, that he really believes that that causes his uh, uh, I don't think that he really believes uh, that because he's going to talk in a minute about people who don't know that an idol is nothing. Uh, and so uh, and so that probably, again, one of the big uh, catch words. Everybody has knowledge that idols are nothing. Everybody knows that. Did you ever see a fella try to end an argument with that statement? Well, everybody knows that. Which means he doesn't have any more evidence, and so he... Uh, He's uh, 
he's quitting and he's trying to throw a, up a smoke screen to run away behind it. And so this is again one of those Corinthian text, uh, textual phrases. Uh, the proper guide uh, is knowledge that the Corinthians believe. Uh, and I'm afraid that our belief in the church isn't. The sufficient guide to any problem is the know that they know what's right. And the Corinthians do. Paul said, we all know that meat offered idols is nothing. Uh, but that's a good answer. That's a sufficient answer. That sounds good. Uh, that if you know what's right, you're, you've got to... Uh, You've got to answer to what's wrong. Uh, that sounds uh, logical. Uh, you see that the Corinthians' appeal uh, is everybody has knowledge, everybody knows an idol is nothing. It is a universal claim. I guess uh, I need to uncover a little bit here since I'm talking about it. There are two motives listed here to activities. Verse 1 through 3 gives knowledge as a sufficient motive to activity. All right, your activity in regard to your weaker brother and him eating meats offered to idols is uh, the knowledge you have that it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and so knowledge is a good motive to activity it certainly is. He's going to say knowledge is good, but not enough in verse 1 through 3. It's not enough to just know that uh, meats offered idols don't mean anything. Knowledge by itself is not the sufficient guide. It's a start. It's the only start that I know uh, in having a guide from God is to get to know God. And the only way I get to know God is through His Word. And so a knowledge of the Word is a good start, but it's not enough. Remember, uh, number one, it's not enough because not everybody knows. We think everybody does, but one of the big problems in preaching is to... Uh, underestimate the ignorance of the audience. We tend to uh, overestimate their knowledge. Well, everybody knows that because uh, I've known it for a long, uh, as long, so long that everybody knows that. So don't assume that everybody knows anything. Now that's number one reason. You'll notice a lot of times the preacher will repeat what he said in times past because, well, one reason he has people of different maturities that come in on him. Uh, this audience is never the same exactly that gathers here. There'll be families come in that you don't even know. You don't know where they come from. And so if you're preaching, uh, a lot of times... <coughs> <clears throat> you'll get redundant with the audience that's generally here 
all the time because they're hearing you repeat yourself. Well, that's necessary. Uh, so that's number one reason. Knowledge is not enough. It's not enough just to know. A second reason knowledge is not enough is that it puffs up. If knowledge is all that is present, uh, conceit follows automatically. And so knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It is a choice between knowledge and love. But the Corinthians have made it that way. We were going to finally find out what they're lack, lacked, uh, lacking. Uh, did they lack knowledge? No. Paul said that. We all know. Uh, he said about meats. Did they lack sufficient revelation? No. Uh, what did they lack? They lacked love was their problem. And that's chapter 13. We haven't got there yet. We're on our way. But Paul is introducing the thought here that uh, even if they had all the knowledge, which they don't, and even if they had all knowledge, which they can't, uh, they would still only be what? Puffed up. Because that's all knowledge does, puffed up, puffs up. You ever seen somebody puffed up with knowledge? Boy, he wants to make everybody know that he knows something, regardless of what, it, what it's about, whether it's hobbies you have like guns or motorcycles. There's always that fellow that's puffed up about what he thinks he knows about something. But love uh, modifies all that, doesn't it? Love comes into the picture. And so Paul says, in essence, that love, knowledge, uh, uh, destroys, love uh, is puffed up and destroys, and love lifts up and redeems. Uh, so if they had all knowledge, they'd still be only what? Puffed up. And so the first reason that knowledge is not sufficient is that not everybody has all they need. And second, even if they did, it would only puff up. And thirdly, it's never complete. He said the man who thinks that he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Anytime a person like in verse 2 there says, I know that, uh, he's claiming what he, uh, when he says, I know that. Uh, that uh, he's, uh, he's, he's declaring complete knowledge. Uh, He's claiming there's no other thing to know in that area because he's puffed up about it. I've seen some terrible arguments down at the Bear Hut over the loading of bullets, uh, how stupid that is. Uh, but them old men up there had pride and they thought they really knew something. And boy, they'd get into some awful arguments. And the rest of us are trying to enjoy coffee and just tell a few lies to one another, you know, and kind of enjoy the, 
the gathering. But there's always those who think they know something and they're always puffed up. Anybody that believes he knows something doesn't yet know as he ought to know. Uh, we're in the process of what? We're in the process of learning always. And so who's the weaker brother? All of us are the weaker brother. They're just some that's weaker than others. And love would demand that we identify them and help them. All right, uh, so uh, the last day that we live, we'll still be learning. Uh, that's why the magic word there are four magic words that answer any question that's asked. I do not know. <clears throat> now, we can say I've learned this about it, but I do not know. It's pretty easy to stay out of controversy when you don't know, isn't it? The only way you can get into controversy is when you know. If I'm in the process of learning something, I say, I don't know. I've learned this about it so far, I think. And it's so comfortable to get there. It will take you a while to get there because we've tried to tell you, you can know but you can know what you think you know, and others uh, than that, other than that, you can't know about it. And so the best way to say is, well, I really don't know, but I think I've discovered this about that. You see all the problems of that doctor <laughs> uh, that's always coming on the news, uh, he's been for a year and a half or so now telling us one thing and then telling us another and he's puffed up with his own ego, his own knowledge. He thinks he's really uh, special because he's a doctor and he's told us one thing out of one side of his mouth, changed it and went the other way and we find out that he's like a little kid. He just led around by the nose. He don't know where he's at. And the whole world's starting to laugh at him. He made a fool out of himself. Uh, so when we come to the point that we can say, I really don't know, but I think uh, I've discovered this about that or whatever, uh, that makes you and, and them us then, doesn't it? In other words, we're in the same boat. Uh, you know, we really like for it to be us and them, uh, and then, uh, and them. Uh, us, uh, us smart guys and them ignorant guys uh, versus righteous people and them prostitutes and ungodly. Paul said it's just us, not them. Just a bunch of ignorant people. And anybody that says I know proves he doesn't know anything yet. Anybody who says he knows doesn't know as he ought to know. 
And so anybody who thinks he has complete knowledge is wrong. He doesn't know yet as he ought to know. And so knowledge is not seeking God, is it? Because number one, uh, not everybody knows. And number two, it's, it only puffs up. And number three, it's incomplete. Uh, whatever you know is incomplete. Well, what's the secret then? The man who loves God is known by God. It's more important to be known than it is to know. Uh, did you really hear that? Because <laughs> it means a whole lot to our growth and development and our preaching and our responsibilities here in Benton City. It is more important to be known uh, than it is to know. I think we need to stress that more to us, uh, I believe, to us who are given the great privilege in teaching others and being leaders in the kingdom, uh, we're, given the, we've give, we're given the privilege, aren't we, by virtue of our training. Uh, we're given the privilege of being teachers and, le and leaders. I think the first thing that we ought to know is that we can't know enough to do, to do that. And so it's not going to be based on what we know. It'll be based on who we know. God, the Father. We're going to love, and that will qualify us in that way. Uh, we're known by God. And that's what Paul said. Well, that introduces then the second guide, which is love. Love is the proper basis. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the pop-off valve go off in a lot of men's uh, face when somebody doubts or questions their knowledge, their astute knowledge. But the man of God is a humble man, supposed to be, and he's supposed to recognize it. He don't know everything, never will. He knows some things, and but he do, does he push him to the point of of uh, contention? No, he don't. He's kind of like what Peter said: "Be ready always to give answer to everyone that asks you." There's a politeness involved there, isn't there? And at the same time, in that politeness is a love for your fellow man, isn't there? You don't go out here and get in somebody's face and. and but I know what I'm talking about. You're insinuating he's an idiot. You're insinuating he don't know what you know and that you're superior to him. No, I just want to be his brother. I just want to be his friend. If he asks me, I'll tell him what I do know or what I think I know, and I'll be open for discussion. If he wants to discuss it and he thinks I'm wrong, I'll smile and listen to him. And I'll take whatever he says uh, to heart and, and listen to him. He may be right. And it may be to my benefit. And so when I say uh, knowledge, I may not include love in it. You know, it's like uh, when you say 
fornication, you include what? Adultery. But when you say adultery, you haven't covered the, the field uh, on fornication. Uh, <clears throat> because pornea is any sexual immorality, while uh, pirotite is sexual intercourse with a person who is not your, your mate to whom uh, you're not married. And so one word is broad and includes the other, and one word is narrow and doesn't include the other. Fornication is a clause or a group word. It, it, fornication is any illicit sex act. Adultery is specific. It speaks of one aspect of fornication. <sighs> And so one word is broad and includes the other, and one word is narrow and doesn't include the other. Love includes knowledge. You cannot love what you do not know. Knowledge is a uh, uh, precursor of love. Uh, it precedes it. And so when you say love, you've been, uh, <clears throat> you're including knowledge. You're also including faith. And you're also including hope. And that's why love is number one of the big three because it includes the other two. And it's like the example I give there of fornication and adultery. Now, love is, in this text, the whole thought there doesn't come out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, in the text we're studying, love is the proper basis of being known by God. And it is the proof, uh, love for the weaker brother. The proof of it is love for a weaker brother. It edifies both parties, the weaker and the stronger brother, and it should guide all of our decisions about the weaker brother in this text. Now, we can take it beyond that and make it border, broader than that, but from this text, love is the basis of being known by God it is the proof that I love the weaker brother. It's evident both of the weaker brother and me. It edifies, excuse me, the weaker brother and me. And it should guide every decision I make about the weaker brother. Not knowledge alone. Matter of fact, knowledge shouldn't guide me. Knowledge should bring me to the, uh, uh, to the, love that guides me. Knowledge is a means to this love that should guide every decision I make. In this text about the weaker brother, that's what he's dealing with.
be a good place to stop. Our time's up this evening. Uh, next week, I'll have an outline for this chapter. And uh, as we work our way toward the conclusion of love in the first and 13th chapter. But here he's discussing the love of a weaker brother and how we should act toward a weaker brother. You ever notice this attitude that people have today? I've got my rights and I'm going to push them. I don't care who they hurt. Uh, and that's why I divorce a lot of times. Uh, I got my rights, and we're gonna we're gonna see to it that we uh, fulfill those rights that we get them. And so I'm gonna stop us right there, as we've just kind of introduced a little bit, a few thoughts here in the beginning of this chapter. This is uh, 22nd. 22nd. And it's going to get colder. Thank you.